Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Seth Cropsey, Senior Fellow here at Hudson and Director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, I'm going to, we'll keep it informal. I'm going to introduce Brian. Brian's going to introduce our guest of honor today, uh, E.J. Armstrong, and um, then we'll uh, hear from him, and then we'll grill him afterwards. Um, Hudson Center for American Sea Power is aims to give greater visibility to America's status as a as a sea power, as maritime power. Uh, we believe that our status as a great power, uh, our international leadership, and such international order as exists in the world today cannot be separated from strong, transoceanic, globally distributed sea power. Sea power remains as important, I would say more important today than it has in the past uh, for the obvious reason that more and more trade travels by the sea and the challenges to the international order uh, are coming in the large littoral areas of the world, the Mediterranean, uh, the Persian Gulf, the waters of East Asia extending into the Indian Ocean. And you can add the Baltics to that also. And our sea power remains relevant. Uh, look at the news. Uh, we have the ability to respond uh, at least the physical ability to respond uh, in examples such as the Iranians encircling of the U.S. flagged Kensington Maersk last Friday, um, and then most recently on Tuesday of this week, uh, the IR, the Iranian Revolutionary, Revolutionary Guard Councils. Uh, diversion, or basically uh, capture of another Maersk Lines cargo ship, container ship, uh, plucked from international waters um, by force and moved into an Iranian port. So I said we have the physical ability to do something about this, but of course the question remains whether we will. Uh, another recent example in the news is the dispatch of carrier Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, to the waters off Yemen, uh, and including support for strikes against ISIS last autumn, um, summer and autumn, 
It's also, sea power is also relevant among other places, but especially in the news, in our uh, commitment to East Asia, uh, particularly our five treaty allies in the area, in the region. Um, and that also uh, depends upon political will and to an increasing degree, um, the number of ships that we're able to bring to bear. Uh, we're putting something like seven to nine ships, commissioning seven to nine ships per, naval ships, combatants per year right now. Uh, most recent information I have is that the Chinese Navy is commissioning about nine times that number, eight or nine times that number annually. So there are large problems. The fleet is too small. It's likely to grow smaller unless Americans recognize the challenge and find the political will to reverse it. Readiness is declining. Surge capacity for emergencies is low. Uh, a lot of this is due to a lack of fiscal responsibility, and that lack uh, is shared in some measure by both political parties. Some of it is due to the nation's fundamental lack of understanding of the importance of sea power to our security and that of our allies and to our prosperity. So we here at the Hudson Center for American Sea Power, um, we're here to do something about that, to talk about it, and that's what we're going to do today. So uh, let me turn the podium over here to uh, uh, Brian McGrath who will introduce uh, Commander Armstrong, and um, we'll take it from there. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming, and for those of you watching on the uh, internet, thank you for your interest. Uh, it's a great pleasure this morning to introduce Lieutenant Commander B.J. Armstrong, um, who will talk with us today about uh, at the very least, about his newest book on Admiral Sims, uh, which is a book that introduced me to the subject. Perhaps he'll talk a little bit uh, about his previous book about uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, but even more interesting, I think, will be a dialogue that we might be able to tease out of him uh, on how these two thinkers remain relevant for today's young naval officers and old naval officers. B.J. is a graduate of uh, the United States Naval Academy, and I believe he has a master's from Norwich University. Um, he is an active duty naval officer. That is his profession. His trade is that of an aviator. Uh, he was a helicopter pilot uh, and has been a helicopter pilot throughout his career. This is his last day as a lieutenant commander. Soon he will be report, uh, promoted to commander and he will be completing his PhD with King's College London before assuming new duties as a permanent military professor at the Naval Academy. 
Uh, I look forward to his remarks, and after Seth and I engage him in conversation for a while, we'll be opening it up to questions from the audience. BJ? Good morning, and uh, thank you to Dr. Cropsey, Commander McGrath, and the Hudson Institute for the invitation to join you here today, and thank you to all of you for coming out on this Thursday morning. It really is a great honor to be here to have a chance to talk with you about naval and military affairs through the lens of our American past. As a bit of pre-flight business, I must remind everyone that while I am, as Brian pointed out, a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy, today I'm here in my private and personal capacity. The opinions I express today are my own and have been developed through my own academic studies, and I do not represent the official policies or deliberations of the U.S. Navy or any government agency. As the great American philosopher George Burns once said, a good sermon is made up with a good beginning and a good ending and having them as close together as possible. So with that inspiration in mind, I'm going to try and keep it relatively short today so we can enjoy some discussion. In 1919, the United States reached a turning point in our nation's history. In the Spanish-American War, we had our first foray into the world's great power politics. But it was at the end of World War I that there could be no doubt that the United States was one of the great powers. As men and ships steamed back across the Atlantic, and the halls of power here in Washington began debating demobilization and how it would work, a tall and bearded naval officer returned to his home from London at Newport, Rhode Island. Admiral William Sims had played an important part in developing the Navy for its newfound place on the world stage. He rose through the ranks after his graduation from the Academy in 1880, and he served during a period of enormous technological and international change. He capped his career to that point as the commander of all U.S. naval forces in Europe during World War I, the Navy's equivalent to Army General Blackjack Pershing. At the close of the conflict, he returned to Newport to assume the responsibilities of president of the Naval War College. He was quite possibly the best-known naval officer of his day. Besides the obvious importance of his position during the war, in the 15 years prior to the conflict erupting, Sims had a central role in modernizing the Navy and preparing it for its position on the world stage. It was in 1901, as a lieutenant, that he reached the defining moment in his career and became an agent for change in the U.S. Navy. Deployed to the Asiatic Squadron on China Station, he developed the techniques of continuous aim fire that revolutionized naval gunnery. This discovery, or maybe more accurately, the theft of the idea from the Royal Navy Captain Percy Scott, his development of it and Sims' attempt to bring it to the fleet started a long and sometimes angry competition with the forces of the status quo in the Navy. It was a competition where Sims' greatest ally and protector was President Theodore Roosevelt. It was with the President's sponsorship that he was assigned the job of Inspector of Target Practice in the Navy. And in that position, Sims introduced his new method of gunnery to the fleet and fundamentally changed the way American battleships fought. He was promoted to lieutenant commander, and he traveled to ships all over the world, helping to train gun crews and teach wardrooms. In the span of just a few years, he and his team increased the speed with which American batteries hit their targets by 100 percent, 
and the overall effectiveness of those batteries by more than 500%. As a part of the program, they created a competition that survives in the Navy to this day, known today as the Battle E, but which originally stood for gunnery excellence. American sailors became some of the best gunners in the world, and they were on the leading edge of a revolution in naval warfare. Throughout the fleet, William Sims became known by the nickname the Gun Doctor, and he was cited as, quote, the man who taught us how to shoot, unquote. And this was all as a junior officer. In the years leading up to World War I, Sims continued pushing boundaries. He was an aggressive and vocal advocate of the all-big-gun battleship, like the British Dreadnought class. And he helped develop the methods of fire control which would come to dominate fleet tactics. He commanded his own battleship, leapfrogging more senior officers to become skipper of USS Minnesota in 1909. In 1911, he went to Newport to enroll at the Naval War College, where he studied naval strategy and policy. And he confirmed the realization that there's much more to being a professional than the shine on your shoes or the grade on your wardroom tactics quiz. He then remained on board in Newport for an extra year as an instructor. During this time, he met and worked with men like Dudley Knox and Pete Ellis, men who would have an enormous and outsized impact on the intellectual and strategic development of the Navy in the interwar years. After his time as a student and instructor at Newport, Sims was given command of the Atlantic Fleet's destroyer flotilla. In that role, he helped develop the, develop the tactics and operational concepts of this new type of warship. He worked closely with the junior officers who were the skippers of these small combatants, helping them to develop their ideas on tactics and operations. Officers like Lieutenant William Halsey. In 1917, he was selected to return to the War College as the president. But before he could settle into the position, he was sent to England by President Wilson to consult with the British Admiralty about the war that was raging in Europe. In civilian clothes and traveling under assumed identities, Sims and his aide set sail for London to meet with John Jellicoe, his friend who had become the first Sea Lord. Weeks after the United States entered the war, Sims was promoted to Vice Admiral and then Admiral and placed in command of all US naval forces in European waters. During the war, he and his staff were central to the adoption of the convoy system and the execution of that system that won the first battle of the Atlantic. When he returned home again after the war, he took up his position as president of the War College. There, he helped establish a system of study and wargaming that would be used during the interwar years to develop these new ideas called naval aviation and submarine warfare that would be central to our victory in World War II. Sims believed that there were a number of lessons that the Navy and the nation needed to learn coming out of the Great War. The best way to ensure that American naval officers learned from this experience was to develop an effective method of professional military education and a proper mindset which valued critical thinking and innovation came to dominate in the fleet. These are lessons that still resonate for us today in the 21st century. Today our discussions and debates of naval affairs are built on our current buzzwords like innovation, talent management, critical thinking, and strategic education. William Sims not only lived these ideals, but he also wrote about them. 
Through the course of his career, Sims wrote articles for journals like the Naval Institute's Proceedings, as well as the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Victory at Sea, which was his memoir and history of his experience in World War I. As today's maritime and defense discussions again raise these fundamental questions about innovation, education, and leadership, the best approaches to these subjects will be informed by an understanding and consideration of our military's past. My book, 21st Century Sims, is a collection of essays which were penned by this inspirational leader and thinker from a century ago. I've added to the writing of Sims with some introductions to provide readers with some context and some of the historical background, as well as some of my own thoughts on the relevance of the subjects which he discusses. From the perils of military conservatism, to the education of officers with strategic foresight, to the needs of a modern talent management system, the book covers naval affairs widely and military and national security professionalism as a matter of course. As we approach the centenary of our entry into World War I, Sims's shadow will fall broadly across the history that we're going to commemorate, but his ideas and his thinking have just as much relevance today as they did 100 years ago. In 1911, Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote in his book, Armaments and Arbitration, that, quote, the study of military history lies at the foundation of all sound military conclusions and practices. 100 years later, as we sail ever further into the 21st century, we're commonly told that we face the most challenging circumstances in history, or that it's the most dangerous time as compared to ever before. These exaggerations tend to ignore the lessons of strategy and policy that come from our past. 21st Century Sims, like my previous book, 21st Century Mahan, was not written to provide prescriptions or equations that will guarantee success in attacking our issues today or in facing our issues in the future. That isn't how the study of history works, no matter how much our engineering-based naval culture wishes it would. 21st Century Foundation series, which these books are a part of, gives modern perspectives to the great strategists and military philosophers of the past, placing their writings, principles, and theories within our contemporary discussions and debates. Whether drawn from famous men or more obscure contributors, collecting and analyzing their writing will inform a new generation of students, military officers, and policymakers. From the writing of Sims, Mahan, Colonel Pete Ellis, and the others who we are collecting in the series from the Naval Institute Press, readers will see that some of what has worked in the past and some of what hasn't. Instead of giving us answers, this will help us be better able to ask the right questions that can frame our solutions for the future. Thank you. Excellent presentation. I look forward to reading the book. Um, would a lieutenant in the Navy today, uh, could a lieutenant in the Navy today make the same kind of progress in affecting ideas that Sims did? I think that in today's Navy, they are there's a, a movement afoot to build the structures that would allow that to happen. Um, overall, our bureaucracy uh, is much larger than it was in Sims's day, so it, it becomes even harder. 
Um, but there are organizations like the CNO's Rapid Innovation Cell, the CRIC, um, whose very purpose is to go out and uh, find junior officers and enlisted who have innovative and interesting new ideas that can help us be more effective um, in, in naval combat. Uh, and then help those officers and enlisted develop their ideas, uh, have them talk with the right technical experts and things like that. Uh, it's a very small program. It's a very small organization. Um, there's much more that can be done and probably should be done today. But I do think that there are opportunities uh, if the junior officers, if the uh, NCOs, if the folks with an innovative idea can find the right opportunities and the right venues. And that's the problem, is these are not well known, and there are not very, uh, there's not very good advertising of them, I don't think, to the fleet at large. And is this, is this CNO group going to have a life beyond Admiral Greener? Well, we can hope. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it is established within the, the Naval Administrative Structure. It's run by Navy Warfare Development Command down in Norfolk. Uh, all the right pieces are in place, I think, for it to survive. Um, but obviously, any Chief of Naval Operations has his own prerogatives. Um, How would you compare the, uh, let me just ask one other question. How would you compare the Naval War College today to the one that Sen said it? I think the Naval War College today is um, in some ways similar and in some ways different. Uh, I'll caveat my answer by saying I am, I am a graduate of the uh, College of Distance Education with the Naval War College. So I have never gone to class there. My only times in Newport um, have been when I've gone up invited to give some guest lectures. Uh, so this is uh, my observation from the outside as much as anything else. Um, I would say the Naval War College is similar to when Sims was there in that it is the premier PME institution in the country, I think. Um, when I talk to friends, uh, when I talk to um, you know, fellow officers uh, from the other services or people from the academic field, it, it's pretty widely seen as the, the best of the PME institutions. That's professional military education. Yeah, right. sorry professional military education, or, or our war colleges and staff colleges. Um, and it wasn't in, in those days as well. It was, it was the founding uh, professional military education organization at that graduate level in, in the United States. Stephen Luce and Alfred Thayer Mahan's establishment of it um, is quite a story in and of itself. So I think in that way it's similar. I think what is different today um, is, is threefold. There are three parts of it. First of all, today the Naval War College is required um, to teach certain things. It is a part of the joint professional military education system. And, uh, you know, per Goldwater Nichols and all of the, the joint processes that have come out of that law, there are uh, certain requirements that our war colleges have to teach certain things in certain ways. Um, and I don't know that that's always the most productive way to do things. Um, so it, it forces their hand to a certain extent on their curriculum. Whereas Sims could design his own curriculum as the president, he could do whatever he wanted. He didn't have a joint organization looking over his shoulder. Uh, the second difference is 
wargaming at the Naval War College does not have the place it did in Sims's day. Um, it is it is by far a much smaller endeavor at the War College today. Um, there are war games. They have these uh, specialty groups of students, the Halsey groups, that do elaborate war games during their electives, but it is not part of the core curriculum. It's only a very small group of the students who get to participate. So that's the second difference. And then the third difference is it was a, it was a professional school in Sims's day. And today it is a professional school, but it's also an academic school, and they grant a master's degree. And I think that like the joint professional military education system that puts certain requirements on the school on how it teaches and what it teaches, so does the accreditation process. And so does the granting of a master's degree. It puts certain requirements on them. Um, and frankly, probably requirements that don't always match that well with some of the more training-related things that JPME requires. Um, so there's a struggle there, too. So in some ways, it is similar. In some ways, it's different today. Okay, just one last question, bear with me. You said just a moment ago that Sims was able to design his own curriculum. Uh, I've known Naval War College presidents for a long time. They don't get involved in designing the curriculum. Does that represent a significant change? I don't know that that's 100% true. Some of them have. Stansfield-Turner had an enormous Turner was impact. the last one who did. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and they do, they do do reviews of their curriculum um, that obviously would have to go through the president in the end. Now, uh, you raise an interesting question. You know, are the, are the people that are placed in charge of the Naval War College placed there because of, like Sims, there's a certain intellectual or academic um, uh, way of viewing professionalism that he was seen with. You know, everyone knew how Sims felt when he was placed in that position. Or is it a stepping stone to other jobs, just a stepping stone to other jobs in, in the flag officer corps? Or is it neither? <laughs> or is it potentially neither? Now, I don't have answers to those questions, but I do think that they are in questions that ought to be asked if we're looking to create the best system of education and training for our officers possible. Okay. You, you alluded early on in your presentation to Sims bursting on the scene as a lieutenant. Uh, I'm going to ask you to tell the story a little more deeply um, because it seems to me, I looked for an analog of a lieutenant taking on a subject that was central to, um, to the philosophy of the Navy's great leader. And I thought about, well, what could that be today? And, and to me, it, it, it would be akin to a young lieutenant on a ballistic missile submarine writing an article in which he or she refutes the whole concept of strategic deterrence and the importance of the Ohio-class submarine replacement that is so near and dear to the heart of the CNO. It's that cosmic what happened in the early 1900s. Could you? I, I'd adjust your parallel a little bit. Okay. Um, because Sims did not challenge the idea that the battleship was the center of the US Navy's fleet or the center of naval affairs. What he challenged was how we design them 
and how we shoot the guns on it. Who did he challenge? He, he was challenging the Bureau of Ordnance. You know, and in those days, instead of our ENCODES that we have today in the, the CNO's staff, we had the bureaus. And the Bureau of Ordnance was responsible for um, the building of the guns that were on the ships, as well as how they were used and the, the tactics, the tactics, techniques, and procedures, as we call it today. Um, so what Sims um, did was he, in, in, in 1901, he joined the crew of the USS Kentucky. Um, he was coming off of staff duty. He had spent three years in Paris as the assistant attache, and he had spent that time really being an intelligence officer, right? That's what attaches, um, particularly then, what, what they were. Um, and so he was spending years studying European gunnery practices and European battleship design. That's what he did. He traveled around. He looked at ships. He wrote reports. Uh, so when he joined Kentucky, which was the Navy's newest and supposedly most powerful battleship, he came to it with a very critical eye. And he started to realize that there were some real problems with how the Navy was designing their battleships. But he also knew that he couldn't change those while he was on deployment. And so he headed off to China Station on the ship. He got his qualls re-upped. He started standing his bridge watches, and he started looking for something that he could affect um, while a junior officer on deployment. And he was in Hong Kong, and he met a Royal Navy Admiral named Percy Scott, who had developed this thing called continuous aim fire. And, and you know, you'll, you'll have to forgive me. I'll, I'll get into gunnery very briefly so that you understand why this was different. So gunnery hadn't really changed in the Navy since the days of Constitution, fighting Guerriere in the War of 1812, right? So the gun director, the head of the gun crew, would you know, judge the distance to the target, set the elevation on the gun, and then try and time the roll of the ship to fire so that he'd hit the target. Now, this was a relatively slow way to shoot because you had to wait for the ship, you had to wait to get your elevation right, and you were kind of guessing at your distances. And it was also, you know, part of the reason why when you see your decisive sea battles in the age of sail, you know, Nelson at Trafalgar, you're talking ships within pistol shot of each other because it's not particularly accurate. So if you get close, you can just blast away at each other. So what Percy Scott had done on HMS Terrible, which was his ship out on China Station, and he had done it on his previous ship too, was he changed the gearing on the elevation gear. And by adding more gears and making it easier to move the gun, the gun director could move the flywheel and the barrel of the weapon could constantly be moving as the ship rolled. The other thing he did, basically, was put a telescopic sight on the weapon. So now it could actually be aimed. So if the gun director had his eye to the sight and was constantly moving the barrel of the weapon, the weapon could stay trained on the enemy. And now you could fire as fast as you could reload. Um, so this kind of changed everything. You know, a ship using this new technique could arguably take on an entire squadron that was waiting to fire every time their ships were. And Sims immediately understood what was going on. Now, Percy Scott had been having problems in the Royal Navy because instead of people realizing he was onto something here, he was accused of cheating in the gunnery competitions. Um, so he was pretty much being ignored in the Royal Navy. And so Sims took this back to the ships in the Asiatic Squadron, and he started trying to re-gear the American guns and teach American gun crews how to use these techniques. And he, he had some success. They were starting to pick it up. So he wrote a report. 
you know, former intelligence officer, had been writing reports for three years. He knew how to write a good report. He wrote a report back to the Bureau of Ordnance outlining what he had discovered and how to do it. And it got to Washington, D.C., just down to the Navy Yard, not far from here. And they read it, and they said, this lieutenant is nuts. There is no way he can be doing what is claimed. And the report got put in a file cabinet in the basement of the building and forgotten about. Uh, so Sims kept working because he's on the other side of the world. He kept developing his TTPs, his tactics, techniques, and procedures. And he wrote another report and sent it off, ignored again. He wrote a third report and sent it off, ignored again. He started getting his captain to endorse them. He started to get George Remy, who was the admiral in command of China Station, to endorse them being ignored. The first time he really came to, the, um, to the, the cognizance of the larger Navy was when he and Admiral Remy decided that they were going to send the reports not just back to the Bureau of Ordnance, but to other captains of other ships all over the world. Well, now the Bureau of Ordnance had to take notice. They, they they couldn't keep ignoring because now they were getting questions from captains of their ships all over the world saying, hey, does this work? Is this true? Should we do this? So the Bureau of Ordnance designed a, uh, a test with the explicit intent of proving that Sims was wrong and it was impossible to do continuous aim fire. And so they set up a test down at the Washington Navy Yard uh, on the shore there. Um, there used to be a range to fire across the river to, uh, to test the guns. So they used a gun mounted on dry land, and they didn't make the changes to the gearing mechanisms, as Sims put in his reports, but they ran the test anyway. So a test you know, on dry land, not moving. Instead, they moved the target instead of moving the ship that was shooting. So the physics are all messed up here. Um, but in the end, they wrote a report out of their test that said what Sims claimed was, quote, a mathematical impossibility. And they sent message traffic around the fleet saying this doesn't work. And so that's, you know, when that message traffic went around the fleet and, and the fleet saw Sims now as a quack, he was crazy because the Bureau had done a test. The, the bureaucracy had said no. And this is when Sims finally had had enough. Uh, he'd written 13 reports in the span of two years. You know, most of them ignored, and now he was told that he was basically lying to the fleet. And he did something that he later on uh, would identify as, uh, quote, the rankest kind of insubordination. Um, he wrote a letter directly to President Teddy Roosevelt. And he outlined what had been going on and why this was wrong and how it arguably could place the U.S. Navy at risk. Because if some other fleet developed this first and they were using it and we weren't, you could forget any sea battle. And Teddy Roosevelt read the letter. And Teddy Roosevelt was a navalist, uh, you know, by the very definition of the word, as we all know. And he understood what Sims was saying. He didn't necessarily believe him. But he said, look, if our gunnery is so bad, he had ordered a test of, of American naval gunnery, and it was, a, it was atrocious. We couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Um, and so he said, look, our gunnery is so bad that Let's try it. Bring them back. Let's just try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll find someone else. Um, so they, they ordered Sims to come back to Washington to, as I said, assume the responsibilities of inspector of target practice. And, and they set him off on this campaign to change the way uh, gunnery was conducted. 
There's a there's there are even more lessons in how well, he I, did that, but I'll I'll stop that. I specifically want the the I, my question was imprecise, so let me try to make it more precise. He took on Alfred Thayer Mahan. Yes, later on, on the on the subject of battleship design. Um, as a lieutenant commander, I suppose. Yes. Um, talk about that briefly, and and because that's the that's the analog I'm making now. He took on the most important figure in U.S. naval uh, matters of that time. Yes. Uh, that it, please go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Um, so that that's actually the the first chapter in the 21st century Sims book is Sims's article on all big gun battleships. And so, uh, you know, how he came to write that article was that the Battle of Tsushima had just happened during the Russo-Japanese War. And it was, the, you know, the first major naval battle, fleet engagement, that had happened in that modern era. And so, navalists all over the world were, were studying it to try and derive lessons and figure out what this meant for the future of naval warfare. And, you know, Alfred Thayer Mahan was, as you said, the great naval mind of the day. And he wrote an article for Proceedings in which he, you know, outlined what happened in the battle and described what he thought the lessons were. And he thought the lesson, the big lesson coming out of the Battle of Tsushima was fleet design, fleet constitution, favored a large battleship fleet of many uh, moderately sized battleships with guns on it that were different calibers. Um, so lots of different options in terms of what you could shoot and how and when. Um, so this article was published in Proceedings. It was Mahan. Everyone loved it because it was Mahan and look at how smart it is. And Sims didn't like it. And President Roosevelt asked Sims what he thought of it. As I said, this was 1905, 1906. He was a lieutenant commander at this point. He had been Roosevelt's naval aide. So this is why Roosevelt asks him. And he wrote a letter to Roosevelt outlining the problems that he saw in Mahan's article because he had a fundamentally different view of what the Battle of Tsushima meant. And Roosevelt read the letter and told him, you know, you really ought to turn this into an article and send it to proceedings, which he did. And so Sims has a, a more up-to-date uh, sequence of the facts of what happened. One of Sims's friends had been an observer, or knew an observer who had been at the battle and had gotten a copy of this observer's report. So it was more accurate than Mahan, who had been working out of newspaper reports. Um, so that was one leg up that Sims had. And it, actually, that article was published in the same um, edition of Proceedings as Mahan's article. So unfortunately, he didn't have it. Um, so Sims comes to the conclusion that no, the Battle of Tsushima, the lesson here is that fleet design we want the biggest, fastest, most armored battleships possible. And we want them to have all the biggest guns possible. None of this mixed battery stuff. All big guns. Even if that means that we have a smaller fleet, because these ships are more expensive and harder to build. Uh, and, and he takes Mahan's argument apart. It is argument. one of the most skillful... Um, deconstructions yeah. of another person's argument that I have ever read. I mean, it's jot and tittle. Yeah. Uh, it really just takes Mahan apart. I, I began to feel sorry for a man who's been dead for 100 years. It, and it, it's an impressive thing to read. And part of the reason I included it in the book is that 
it's a great example for officers today who want to have an impact and want to do it through professional writing. Because it shows that you can. You can influence the fundamental questions of the day as a lieutenant commander. But to do it, you have to have done the homework. You have to have done the research, and your argument has got to be spot on. You have to deconstruct it just the way Sims does, um, which means hard work and study outside of your day job, so to speak. Um, and so that, that's part of the reason I included it in the book, because it does offer that amazing example for those of us today who consider professional writing an important part of our naval profession. Okay, I'm gonna, I've got a few more before we turn it over to this wonderful audience. Um, Sims talked about the, the, three, the three elements of, uh, of, uh, of, of strategic thinking generation, right? It was professional education, wargaming, and then there was this concept of personal reading outside of the day job. Do you see any evidence that that's happening among uh, the broad family of naval officers out there today. We see, we see reading lists promulgated every year that I think become birdcage liners. Well, I, th I think it is interesting, reading lists in particular, it is interesting to note that there, there's only one Navy reading list. You know, the CNO's reading list is the only reading list that a naval flag, a flag officer, a naval officer puts out publicly. Um, and the other services, lots of people put out reading lists, right? The, the chief of staff of the service invariably does, but lots of times war college presidents do, or you know, uh, you know, General McMaster might, or other other general officers do in the other services. So I think that's an interesting thing to note. Um, I did have uh, I gave a lecture up at the Naval War College um, about Mahan after my Mahan book came out, and I did have a retired senior officer uh, with a doctorate who has been teaching in PME for a very long time, tell me, BJ, if you think you're going to tell commanders and captains who look back on their own experience in order to derive how they're going to approach the future, that they ought to read books about dead guys, and that might help them, they're just going to laugh at you. Um, so that's disheartening, I think, um, although there's an element of truth there. Um, now, on the flip side of that coin, I do see a lively um, online kind of discussion that has developed over the past decade or so that does demonstrate that a number of particularly junior and mid-grade officers are pursuing um, professional reading and, and personal professional study and writing on their own. Uh, and I think that is absolutely uh, heartening. You know, I'm on the editorial board at the Naval Institute, and we review the articles that come into proceedings, and we get a lot of really great material from junior officers who have obviously done the hard work. So there, it, it's a mixed bag, I guess, is the answer. The, the, um, you talked about, in the book and here, about how Sims and his captain created a virtual network among the other captains of the battleships, and this is really important part of that first, the first essay. Um, I can't even imagine what he would have done with an internet. Yeah, that's if, exactly if, right. If he had one at the time. Uh, you are um, about to be 
promoted out of the ranks of junior officers and you won't be able to, uh, you will have no credibility among them anymore once you become a scrambled egg wearing commander. Um, there, this lively community that you talk about, I lurk electronically uh, on them also. Um, I wonder if you would attack or how you would evaluate this. We have on television a proliferation of shows that would attempt to prove that virtually anyone in America can sing, right? Um, I sometimes feel like as I read some of the, what goes on, what passes for debate and the like electronically, that there is this, a, a new brand of innovator, to use one of my favorite buzzwords, um, who hasn't done the hard work, who has, hasn't done the reading, um, who, who to some extent believe that being an iconoclast uh, is their ticket to, into the debate rather than their ideas and their brains. Am I just an old fuddy-duddy, or do you see some evidence of that out there today? So I think, um, yes, you're an old fuddy-duddy. Okay. Just want to establish that. Good. Get that out of the way. Um, but there is an element of that out there today. Um, there's, a, there's a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel uh, reservist who's studying for her PhD at Georgetown right now, Jeanette Haney, who writes occasionally for the Naval Institute's blog, and she wrote a very, very interesting piece on, on military officers and how we read and how we think. And, and it made me think about um, critical thinking, the phrase critical thinking. And it seems an awful lot today like we think the phrase critical thinking means thinking about important things, right? Thinking about critical ideas. Instead of, you know, so the thinking is first and the critical is second. Instead of the critical being first, critical meaning having criticism, right? Challenging assumptions, challenging the foundational arguments, telling somebody they're wrong, um, but having the backup as to why they're wrong. Um, and so I do think that there's this, this issue with what really is critical thinking um, in much of our debate today. You know, just because you're talking about something that's important, you, you raised the, the idea of the you know, the Ohio class replacement and strategic deterrence, very important subject. Just because you're writing about that doesn't mean that what you're doing is critical thinking. Um, and there is, there is a part of um, that professional writing that heads down that path. The barriers to entry are much lower today you know, with the internet. So there's great things about the networking that can be done. Right? Sims and his friends had to write letters that were then carried by steamships across the world and read weeks later. Completely different experience than the instantaneous social networks we have today. Um, so the, the, the networking part is positive, but those barriers to entry become lower because of it. And if I think I'm important and I think I have a great idea, I can get it published wherever I, you know, I can get it out there um, without much editorial overview. Which is also a good thing, because people won't stifle, you know, truly innovative ideas. Uh, but it has its ups and downs, its strikes and gutters. Well, we would appreciate it if you'd 
think about your use your experience, your coming experience at the at the Naval Academy, and come back and tell us what you think the state of critical thinking is, or the teaching of critical thinking is at the Naval Academy. I, th I do know they're actually the the Stockdale Center at the at the Naval Academy has a project that they're working on right now about about these very subjects. Um, so they they are they this is in the consciousness. This is in the military academic consciousness. This discussion and what it really means. Are there any are there any bureaucratic or procedural obstacles to? Um, I mean, I, there's already a prize that's offered for writing for junior officers. Um, proceedings, annual prize. Are there any obstacles to an outside group offering a prize for an article in proceedings? No, or in for, fact, or for naval writing? Uh, in fact, in proceedings, there are, or in the Naval Institute's kind of eco space, there are half a dozen at least essay contests each year. Um, I think what you were referring to is the general prize essay contest, which is the longest essay contest in, in professional writing goes all the way back to the 1870s. Uh, in fact, um, Mahan's article on naval education that's in the book, my first book, was his third place winning uh, essay in the general prize essay contest. So th there's a long and established history there um, with guys like, you know, Ernie King who won it as a lieutenant um, and, and other major naval figures. But there are also other essay contests that the Institute runs. Um, there's one on leadership. Um, now, the general prize is open to anybody, the, uh, or anybody in uniform, I believe. Uh, the leadership essay contest is open to lieutenant commanders and majors and below, so 04s and below only, so very specifically junior officers. Uh, there's, an, there's an essay contest coming up on, on innovation and risk. There's an essay contest on uh, global defense relationships. So there are a number of them that offer cash prizes, and they are sponsored by um, other organizations that come to the Naval Institute and, and offer the money for the prizes. Hmm. Shall we turn it over to our party audience? Are there any questions in the audience? Paul? Mr. Giara. There's a microphone coming to you. And there is a microphone, yes. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, BJ. I appreciate uh, your terrific presentation. So um, I have an hypothesis, uh, and I didn't have it when I walked in, and that is that this is not about Sims at all, um, that it be, I, I'm reading about um, the arsenal of democracy and the origins of the arsenal of democracy, the great interwar and World War II ex, uh, industrial defense industrial buildup really started around 1900. And so at the time that Sims was doing all this, arcing and sparking on the China station and writing letters and so on, there was a tremendous ferment in American uh, indust industry and um, technology and so on. And of course, we were becoming a, a world power, as you said. My sense is that then as now, well, first let me tell you that my sense now is well, the same thing's going on, except that um, w there are the same kinds of barriers to the breakthrough that Sims personifies. And so that therefore, my sense is, and this is my hypothesis, that the problem is not that there aren't Sims around. You are one of those. 
frankly, but that it's the breaking through and the organizational resistance or sort of tone deafness and so on to the ideas that are, um, are um, fermenting in the blogosphere, in the schools, w in the fleet. Would you comment on that? Um, I, I'd be very interested to see, since you've been thinking about this so critically and, and you are part of the solution now, how, uh, what, do you, do you see that similarity, first of all? Um, and second, um, what does that mean for going forward and, and hauling up, in the nautical sense, um, present and future sins? So the, um, kind of at a almost philosophical, theoretical level, what you're talking about is, is fundamentally what Sims wrote about in his essay entitled Military Conservatism, which is in the book. And he talks about the, the fundamental nature of militaries and quite frankly that we are conservative and status quo forces intellectually. Um, and he goes all, he traces this back, you know, through adoption of steam engines instead of sail in the Navy. Goes all the way back to the adoption of the longbow and the crossbow um, in warfare. Uh, and he kind of shows these examples in the, in the essay of the fact that, look, this is kind of part of how military forces are culturally. But it's the ones who adapt and innovate fastest when challenged that are successful in conflict. And therefore, we need to teach ourselves to be able to be like that. And that's when he gets into things like critical thinking, and though he doesn't use those words. So on kind of a theoretical and philosophical level, Sims wrote about that you know, specifically. Um, in terms of your more modern day uh, discussion in comparison, I think it is interesting to go back and look at, you know, Sim's own experience um, when he committed the rankest kind of insubordination, you know, when he wrote to President Roosevelt. Was it really insubordination? I, I think it probably kind of was. I think he was right. Um, Arguably, you wouldn't get that kind of response today. Um, no matter who the president is, it just, just doesn't work that way. Um, but Sims had nowhere else to go or felt like he had nowhere else to go with his idea. And that's really the fundamental question, I think, is do we have places for people with these ideas to go and get a second opinion, so to speak? Right? So there's, a, there's the place to go for the first opinion. All of our manuals, our tactics manuals, our for aviators, our NATOPS manuals, tell us how to submit recommendations for change, tell us how to write white papers to submit up the chain of command. So that process does exist. But as you, as you kind of point out, and as Sims talks about, that tends to be a relatively conservative and stagnant process. So is there a way for, to get a second opinion? And that's what Sims was looking for, was a way to get a second opinion. What Sims didn't know was during this period, an organization was being stood up called the General Board. And the General Board was supposed to be the Secretary of the Navy's red team, so to speak. They were supposed to take these crazy ideas and evaluate them to try and make the Navy better. You know, George Dewey was the first, uh, first president of the, of the board. And in fact, uh, Admiral Taylor, who was the head of the Bureau of Navigation, which at the time ran personnel, there was no Bureau of Personnel at that time. Navigation ran it. 
Well, when, when Sims had his orders cut to go be the inspector of target practice, Taylor was the head of the Bureau of Navigation who cut the orders. And Roosevelt had this great idea. Taylor's the one who had the signature authority to cut the orders and make it happen. Well, Taylor had been Mahan's hand-picked successor at the Naval War College's president. And he had been on the staff of the general board when it was founded. And so now, as the head of Bureau of Navigation, he sees this guy, Sims, he's like, oh, I get that, right? But if Sims had been able, if he knew the general board was there, if he knew these other organizations were trying to be built, maybe he would have sent a letter to them instead of the president. And if they are looking for ideas, maybe it's not in subordination. So can we bring that history lesson into the present day? And that's the question. If we've got a lieutenant who's out in PACOM with a great idea, sends it up the chain of command, and it gets stifled, is there a place for that person to go for a second opinion that that person knows about? It's great for us to create administrative and bureaucratic answers. But if people in the fleet don't know that they exist, then it actually doesn't help. Right? So there are movements afoot. We talked about the CRIC, the CNO's Rapid Innovation Cell. The Secretary of the Navy recently launched Task Force Innovation and, and is pushing an innovation um, uh, agenda. What these programs need to keep in mind is they got to be advertised. People need to know that they're available and where to send their ideas. And people need to get feedback and know that they were heard. Doesn't mean they were executed or followed through, right? Just means they were heard instead of ignored for two years writing 13 reports like Sims was. Um, so there are great uh, questions that Sims' historical experience can help us ask today that will make these processes better for us today. So, not yet, very shortly. Sims wrote early in the last century about what he considered a deficit in strategic thinking among naval officers. Representative Randy Forbes wrote the CNO a letter this year in which he made the very same or similar charges. He's the chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee, and it was his perception that there was a lack of strategic thinking. Had nothing changed in 100 years? I wouldn't say nothing has changed in 100 years. But I think what it does illustrate is a certain cultural tendency um, in the Navy to focus on the technical, to focus on the technology, the tactics, uh, what's in front of me right now. Um, you know, Sims writes about this in one of the essays. One of the, one of the pieces of advice that I have received any number of times during my career from excellent mentors is take care of your job today. Do your job today as best you can, and everything else will take care of itself. Your career will be okay. It will sort itself out. Focus on your job today. But the unspoken reality behind that is your job today will automatically prepare you to do your boss's job. And Sims takes that on on its face and says, no. No, it doesn't automatically prepare you. And particularly when it comes to assuming command and positions beyond command at the highest levels in the Navy, if you're not studying on your own and preparing yourself, you're going to be woefully unprepared. Um, and, and that's part of why he talks about 
personal professional study in his three tenets of professional education. Now, uh, has, have things changed today? I think we are still a very technology and technical focused service. On the one hand, that's a very good thing. What we do is very technical and it's very technology driven. Um, so, you know, the, the importance of STEM is certainly there. But the importance of studying things like the humanities, the social sciences, international relations, strategy. You know, Sims says he went to the War College, and the War College didn't teach him everything he needed to know. It taught him how much more there was for him to learn. I think a lot of the naval culture today says, oh, we'll send you to the War College, you'll learn to be a strategist, and that's good, you're done. Um, and, and Sims doesn't believe in that. Paul, please go ahead and follow up. Thanks. This is all connected, so it, this is not a diversion from what you just said. But it seems to me um, from the story that you've told that Sims is the essential player. There's no question about that. It took Sims to do this. But the tailor is the critical player. And so uh, along the lines of what you've been talking about, it, it's going to be important going forward, from uh, speaking for myself, to think about where do you get, it's not where you get the, if my hypothesis is, is correct, it's not where you get the sims. It's not where you get the thinker who has the, uh, the good idea, the innovation. It's where you get the facilitator who recognizes it and has been prepared in his own professional experience to say, that's it. I want more of that. And that, that's an observation that Sims's own biography, as you then go, go forward in time from that, from that moment when Taylor cuts him the orders, Sims's own biography bears out. You know, when he is the commanding officer of the destroyer flotilla, he's not the one developing the tactics and the procedures. The lieutenants are, the lieutenant commanders, the skippers of these small combatants. He wants them to develop them because they're the ones standing on the bridge, driving the ships, learning to fight them. He wants them to develop the ideas, and he cultivates that. Um, likewise, when he goes to London in World War I, he brings you know, guys like Dudley Knox along with him to be on his staff. The whole idea here is to listen. So they get to London, and the British junior officers, who know of Sims's reputation, come to him and say, the Admiralty won't let us do this convoy thing. They say there aren't enough ships. We need to stay with the battle fleet. We are losing the Battle of the Atlantic. The U-boats are winning. And Sims sides with the JOs. Right? It's not his idea, but he sees a good idea, and he's the one that goes to the Admiralty and says, hey, I think this is a great idea. Let's execute this. I'm going to bring my destroyers over. So now your excuse of we don't have enough ships is gone, and let's give it a try. Well, they give it a try, and it's almost instantly successful. You know, overnight, the convoys work. Swarming destroyers going after the U-boats at the target, as opposed to before, where they were just randomly searching grid squares in the ocean. Um, and so Sims's own biographical experience you know, bears out your observation that it's not just the innovator. The innovator needs senior officers that are going to look out for that good idea and help them develop it as well. We have one in the front row here. Hello. Um, 
I'm going to do something a bit sacrosanct, and I'm going to roll a couple of lit grenades at you. And this is coming in part from, from Brian's point about do we have Simses today? And one name I want to throw out because I'm curious to see what you think of it as an analogy is actually McMaster, a guy who has, has, has taken a lot of risk in his career, who, who started very well heralded and, and took on a lot of risk and created a lot of enemies in the same way that Sims did. After the war, Sims's attitude caught up with him in a very interesting way, which I'm, I'm sure, BJ, you know the history of that. Um, but that, you know, he had a lot of these types of moments where he was trying to change the system and it nearly killed his career. He was saved a couple of times. He was out on a limb. But I, I, I see that that is maybe the closest analogy. And I'm curious what you think of that, what you think of guys like, you know, the Fox Connor Eisenhower story, those kinds of things. And, and what you talked about with conservatism, both technologically and culturally, but also from a professional standpoint of what you were just saying about, you know, we'll just do your job today and worry about, you know, just let everything else fall into place. I'm, I'm just curious what you guys think of that. I, I, I am going to sidestep part of the question because I don't know that I really want to comment on the general's career um, thus far, although I do think it's an interesting parallel that you raise, and it, it's worthy of discussion. Um, but, you know, as a fellow serving officer, I'm going to sidestep that one. Um, you know, you're, you're bringing up Fox Connor and Eisenhower. For those who don't know, uh, Fox Connor was Pershing's G3 in World War I. He was a mentor to a number of folks, including Eisenhower and Patton. Um, and in fact, when Eisenhower's career looked like it was pretty much over, uh, because he wasn't going to get into Leavenworth to go to the Command and General Staff College, it was, it was Fox Connor who helped finagle the system a little bit, get the administrative ducks in a row to make sure Eisenhower got there. He was also a, a mentor to him in terms of that personal professional study. They were both stationed down in, in Panama in the Canal Zone for a period and would take long horseback rides along the canal where Connor would quiz Eisenhower on reading assignments that he had given him of, of you know, great military strategists and, and military history. So there are those, as, as Mr. Jarrett brought up, the, the mentorship relationships, the senior subordinate thing that's, that's very important. Um, and now I've, I've headed off down a different path compared to your question. But. Well, there's an interesting, I, I think when you bring up McMaster, I look, be, look at these two gentlemen here, Alfred Thayer Mahan and Admiral Sims. Um, both brilliant men, both incredibly well-written, both strategic thinkers, only one of them was a good operator. McMaster is more like Sims in that he is a great mind and he fights. <laughs> he knows how to. I, I, was, I, I was kind of rolling that particular grenade. Oh. I think it's a, it's a nice parallel you've made. I mean, you, if he, he can think and he can fight. Um, I, I, you know better than I, but I think Alfred Thayer Mahan's time in command at the, at the captain level was not a particular success. Um, uh, McMaster goes into increasingly difficult operational jobs and does very well in them. 
I think he's more here. I also think that something that this conversation raises that's underneath the surface is part of the talent management buzzword that we use today. And remembering when we talk about some of this stuff that we're talking about uh, officers who served under a fundamentally different promotion and personnel system than we have today, right? Both Mahan and Sims uh, lived under uh, what was known as um, waiting for dead men's shoes, right? There were no promotion boards. There were no selection boards. You joined the Navy, you got a number on the Navy list, and as someone retired or died, and died is for real, there are plenty of 70-year-old admirals who actually never went to work but never resigned. As someone retired or died, everyone would move up one spot on the list. And eventually you'd need another lieutenant commander, and so someone would get promoted to lieutenant commander, or a group of them each year or whatever. But there was no selection process. Um, and that was introduced in 1916 with the Naval Personnel Act of 1916, where promotion by selection, where a board would meet and choose you know, the best and most fitted officers for the job. Um, that happens in 16, and then the war happens. So of course it doesn't get implemented until after the war, and Sims retires. Uh, one of the essays in the book is, is Sims's reflection on this promotion by selection idea and how it works administratively and, and what the philosophical underpinnings of some of it is. Um, but, uh, but I do think it's important because a guy like Sims, yes, he was protected much of the time. He only needed so much protection, though, because it wasn't like in another year there was going to be a board of senior officers judging him. Right? He just needed to be protected enough that no one outright fired him. Uh, and it, it did create a different dynamic for guys like Sims and Bradley Fisk and some of the more, you know, uh, disruptive is our buzzword today, the more disruptive members of the officer. So we had one in the back row. I'm sorry, I'll get to you next. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Uh, you beat me to it uh, as far as I was going to ask a question as far as the, the promotion by selection. Um, and since you brought it up, I'm, I'm wondering if you would answer uh, whether or not you think there is a time that it needs to be reconsidered as far as how there is promotion because uh, you just brought up how Sims uh, experienced that new type of promotion system. And I think it was in the book that you said that he realized that he was a part of the institutionalized group think um, where, you know, he saw it on the other end, and then now that he's up and, and, and made it um, in command, uh, he's kind of, he sees the other side of it. And so I want to ask you, I guess, um, if, if, if officers choose people for promotion um, by selection based on, I guess, if they see similarities in themselves, um, that kind of, to me, is the crux of the situation that you, you get these kind of people who, you know, knock down new walls and then you need an, a new innovator kind of every generation or so. Um, so my, my, the point of my question is, do you think that there needs to be some type of review as far as how the promotion system works or else you're just going to have more and more people out there in the fleet with the group think and worried about, you know, having their career on the line if they're 
out, you know, out on their heels. Right. I, I do think that the, the personnel system in the Navy, um, but in the military kind of writ large, is ripe for some reform. Um, and and you, you see this throughout history, right? So I talked about the Naval Personnel Act of 1916. That comes about because of a long debate in the pages of proceedings by angry junior officers who want to get promoted faster because they think they're better at their job. Um, there's, a, there's a great story of, um, of Edward Beach when he and John Lejeune graduate from the Naval Academy. And they go up to the Bureau of Navigation to meet with Admiral Ramsey, who was the head of, or Captain Ramsey, who was the head of the Bureau at that time. And they actually take a list of the deadbeats who are still on the Navy list with them and say, because at that point, people were so slow in leaving the service that it, when you graduated from the academy, you weren't guaranteed a commission. You weren't guaranteed to become an ensign because they only had so many slots. And so they took a list of deadbeats with them. It's like, this guy's missing a leg. How is he going? He's not even, he hasn't been to sea in 20 years, you know? This guy is 70 years old and hasn't put on a uniform in 10 years. And they had this whole list of 30 officers that just needed to be gotten rid of. And oh, by the way, it would open up for the entire class to come in. Um, so the system was different then. Those guys started a discussion that went through the first decade and a half or so of the 20th century that led to a reform, right? Naval Personnel Act of 16 was fundamental. In the 1850s, we've got a, a guy, Samuel DuPont, who at the, that point's a commander. He will go on to be one of our first admirals and a significant commander in the Civil War. But at that point, he's an angry commander because he can't get promoted, right? And he, pa he gets legislation forced through that introduces something called the plucking board, where a board sits down and once again picks through the list and fires people so everyone else can move up. Um, after World War II, fundamental shifts in the naval personnel system and the military personnel system as the 20-year retirement is introduced. You know, today we act like the 20-year retirement is our God-given right and it's always been the way it's been. No, it hasn't actually. You know, 30, 35 years was long the norm to get to retirement. Um, but so there's a fundamental change there in the way officers approach their careers. I think today we are ripe again for some some reforms, and I think we've seen some writing and some talking about it from very senior people who are in positions to make these decisions. You know, um, Admiral Moran, who's the head of, of Naval Personnel, had an article in the January issue of Proceedings that was a think piece that really thought hard about a number of these issues. Um, Secretary Mavis even talked about personnel reform in his recent speech at Sea Air Space. So I do think that, that there's momentum, there's movement there. Um, you know, Sims's essay on, on the promotion by selection system, he identifies four problems with the way it was being executed at the end of the teens, early 20s. Arguably, we have not addressed those four problems in 90 years. Um, so there is lots of room for change. Second row here, please. And I think this is probably our last question. What do you think, Beth? Yavan Noturno with the Interactivity Foundation. Thank you very much for the interesting discussion. And my question is, um, what lessons uh, about innovation or innovation policy in particular uh, can we learn from Sims Life for the 21st century? I know you already talked about many elements, including uh, developing procedures, so being more receptive to innovative ideas. But um, what else? 
Thank you. Thank you for the question. I do think that, you know, so we talked about some of the specifics, right? We talked about getting the bureaucracy and the administrative process right. We talked about, uh, for lack of a better word, the advertising part of it, right? Making sure people know that this exists and the opportunities are there. Um, I do think that, and this is something that has kind of entered the discussion recently, I do think that we need to, you know, raise it to the 50,000 foot level as an aviator speak and talk about the philosophy side of this, the cultural side of this a little bit too. The Navy has a lot of wonderful examples of innovation in our past. And there are lots of times when the culture of the Navy has been innovative. SIMS is just one example. Um, you, you get the, the monitor, you know, John Erickson and the monitor in, in the Civil War where it's built in a matter of months. Um, there are a number of examples, um, even the Aegis system. I'm in Rickover in, in the introduction of, of nuclear power. These are all examples. Do we focus on this culturally, though? Do we talk about this culturally? You know, the Marines talk about adaptation and innovation as part of their culture. You know, Brute Krulak wrote it, about it in First to Fight, which is kind of their dogma document, for lack of a better phrase, as a historical book. Um, they're taught about this at boot camp. I remember being at the Naval it's, Academy. It's, it's actually theology for the Theology. I, I remember, you know, as a midshipman at the Naval Academy, being taught this by the Marines, that this is what the Marines are about. Adaptation, overcoming the obstacles, innovation. Um, they, they've adopted that mindset culturally. It doesn't mean that they do it any better or worse than anyone else, but they've adopted it culturally so that they do it more often and they think about it more. Um, I do think there's room for us as a naval service, as the Navy, to look at that cultural side of it and try and embrace that a little bit better. Uh, because we do have a strong history of innovation and doing new things and trying new ways of approaching the world uh, that, that many historians have written about, uh, that maybe we just need to talk up better. Before turning this over to Seth for closing us out, I would like to make sure everyone knows that you can follow Lieutenant Commander Armstrong at Twitter. He goes by the handle of at WWATMD, which is short for What Would Alfred Thayer Mahan Do? You can follow me at Wahoo, which is short for Conservative Wahoo, and you can follow Seth at, at Seth Cropsey. You can also buy... Yeah, I'll be available to sign books, books uh, afterwards. And sign afterwards and see these spiffy uniforms that we got rid of in favor of terrible blue camouflage uniforms. Well, BJ, thank you very much for an uh, excellent presentation. Thank you, sir. Um, hope to hear from you again. Expect to. Um, Brian? your help in organizing and putting this together. And to Rachel Cox for her assistance. Thank and you. And to Rachel. And uh, Adam. And for all of you uh, for coming out today and asking good questions, um, follow us, please. And there will be more events like this, as there have been in the past. And we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.